Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode. Brought to you by Hunting Exchange, a marketplace for serious hunters by serious hunters. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We have a highly requested, highly sought after, highly respected guest this week. None other than Mr. Bobby Worthington. Bobby, how are you doing? I'm doing great, fellas. I, I appreciate it. I want to tell you first, I noticed that on another podcast I've done that the fellow speaking said quite a bit of stuff about me on, on his podcast before I come up and was talking. 
let me tell you right now, you better make this easy on yourself. The, the less you say before I talk, the less you're going to have to take back when I'm through with this thing. Here. <laughs> so just keep that in mind. Keep it short and sweet and to the point. All right, we got the ginger bow hunter, Jacob Myers, yep. over here. Bobby, very ginger ex- avenger. Yep, ginger avenger. Yeah, very excited to have you on, Bobby, and have this discussion. Also, we have Michael Pike with us. Michael, how are you doing, buddy? Bella. I'm good. How are you guys? Awesome. Excellent, excellent. Well, Bobby, we were talking before we got on and started recording. Now, I was telling you that I'm looking to go to Illinois this year. I know that was uh, one of your, you know, hot spots back in the day where you'd go and kill a lot of big deer. And we had brought up – I had picked a, a couple different little management areas or some pieces of public land that I was looking to go. And, and you brought up some really good points that you kind of wanted to cover when it came to, you know, what to be looking for while out there. So I'll let you kind of take that away. Um, again, you know, if a guy was looking to go, say, to Illinois and, and get into that kind of, you know, big deer habitat and, and area. I just tell you, before you take off, Jacob, you, you need to make sure that there's a deer on that managed area that you want to spend time hunting because it takes an extremely, a lot of effort and time to kill a big deer on purpose. And there's just, in any given year, I mean, my goal is I've killed some 180s, but 180 is okay, 180 and up. And that's my goal. And there's just so many 180-plus whitetail, say, in Illinois or on managed areas in Illinois in any given year. And just because somebody says that a place you're going to go to had a couple big ones killed a couple years ago or in the last five years, that don't mean there's one there now. So before you settle in, you mentioned a couple managed areas you're going to. I'm telling you, there's no use going there and putting in the time and effort and hard work unless you know a deer is there that you're wanting to kill. I mean, I've done a lot of work beforehand. I would call the the managers of the area and drive up and talk to him and talk to the rangers. And if there's a big deer there, usually it's no secret. Hunters like to talk about what they've seen. And they'd come out of the woods a lot of times and run to a ranger or the manager, and they'd talk around the office. They'd like to hang out around the park office. And they would know. They'd say, you know, they'd say they've been, they've been hunters here the last two or three years after this giant deer, but nobody's got him. Or they might say three or four years ago we've seen a big deer crossing the road regular, but he's disappeared. Well, he's probably dead, might die of old age, or a poacher might have killed him. That's not good information, but if if the ranger or the park manager, I mean, if they live in Illinois and work there on that managed area, they're going to know what a big deer is. Tell them you're not interested in 150 or 130. You're talking about a 180, and just make sure that it's worth your time and effort. If, if I'll tell you what, if you don't know a big deer is there, it's a lot harder to go out day after day after day in the cold, and move stands, hang stands, monitor cameras, and set daylight to dark. It's just a lot harder if you're just hoping a big deer happens to be on that managed area at the time you're there. So it's a tremendous amount of hard work. You got to go in the spring, and you you got to scout, and you got to find your funnels, and and find the big deer sign, and try to try to pattern him through funnels, and set them funnels up, trim shooting lanes, make you mock strafes. And then in the fall, you go up and you, you hang your stands and you, you get ready to hunt him during the rut. And 
you might go out at night. I, I did a lot of times when I was hunting, setting daylight to dark, then go out at night and I'd say I need to move a stand a little bit. I'd have to move a stand and go out and monitor my cameras at night and set daylight to dark. Rain, cold, wind, daylight to dark for two weeks. I'm telling you, hunting a big deer and killing a big deer on purpose is a lot of hard work. And you won't dedicate yourself to that hard work unless you know something is there that you want to kill. So don't just pick out a managed area because a big deer has been killed there in the past and it's got good genes in there or 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 it looks good on a map. Do some research and make sure that a deer is there that you would want to target and kill because if you don't, you won't put the effort into it and it won't be worth it. It's not worth my time and effort to try to kill a big deer on accident and just hope one's there. I mean, a lot of deer are killed in the United States every year that's uh, trophy quality, but a big part of them are killed on accident. But, and they may not have put a lot of time and effort like I'm talking about. But most of the time I targeted a big deer, I would kill it. But it wasn't, it wasn't by accident, it was because of hard work. There's a guy at the archery 3D shoot the other day, said he would, give anything to outshoot me and i told him i said if you want to outshoot me outwork me and uh, he walked with his head down because he ain't gonna outwork me and that's just the way i am about killing big deer you're gonna have to earn it if you're gonna kill one and you can earn them if you got the knowledge and then put in the effort you absolutely can earn them and you can kill them most people talk about hunting hard and they prepare hard and they spend all year talking about it maybe on the internet <clears throat> but when it comes time to get out there and, and get that deer they just don't have the tenacity and the toughness to stick with it like it's got to be done to kill him on purpose so make sure that don't just pick out a couple managed areas to go to make sure before you do it's got the it's worthy of your time and effort if you're going to do it right it's got to have a deer there that's that's worthy of your time and effort you don't want to work work like i'm talking about working and then a 140 inch deer be the biggest deer on the place you just don't want to do it now bobby this is michael uh i've got a question this is not jacob so how who are you who are you talking to or who are you finding out from that there's actually a 180 because a lot of people don't talk. A lot of people kind of keep that thing a secret. You know, they have this, uh, you know, the, the saying, what is it? Uh, the Loose lips sink loose, ships. Loose lips sink ships. That's it. Well, I'm telling you, they might tell you they don't talk about it, but the comment you, the comment you just made should tell you they do talk about it. <laughs> when they say, I, I'm not going to talk about it, then... I guarantee you they're wanting to share it and they just did share something to you. But the managed areas the the managed areas has a lot of employees on it. And you got the guys that plant the food plots and you got the rangers and you got the guys that uh, the ladies that come into the office. I just go and hang out a few days in late winter and early spring and I just talk to them and I promise you they may be a hunter, a, a hardcore hunter that don't tell about it, but there's three more that's seen that deer that are novelists that don't think they got a chance to kill him anyway, and they want to tell what a monster buck they seen, how big his rack was, it looked like a rocking chair turned upside down. 
people tend to share something exciting to them. So I, I found that I found that I can pretty pretty well depend on my reconnaissance in that area and talking to the rangers. And the rangers may have seen him crossing the road. If you're nice to the guys and they see you're genuine. And, and you're, you know, you try to be a classy guy always, and they will, they will share that with you. And if they don't, they may be one there, okay, that that people are tight-lipped about, but move on to the area that that they do share that with you, that there's a, a real big deer there. And they usually know what a big deer is. I mean, they they worked there for years, and they live in that state, Illinois, or wherever. <laughs> and they usually know where a big deer is, and they know what a big deer looks like. Now that and, was a really good point that you just brought up. And it's something you don't usually hear about a lot, which was you're you're not going up there and asking them right before the season or during the season when you go up there to hunt. You're trying to establish, I guess, a rapport with these people after the season when it when you're not necessarily hunting. And I think people probably overlook that aspect a lot. Like they're they're more apt or more willing to tell you something if you're not going up there to kill that deer right at that, you know, point in time. Right. And one of the rangers may hunt, but all of them may not. Uh, if if ranger hunt, but now most of the time, I've went up and talked to many rangers and managers. I usually talk to the manager first because the rangers talk to him and tell him what they've seen. And the manager wants to know. A manager wants a big deer. He wants the publicity of raising a big deer and a big deer being killed on his place. As long as he thinks you're not a poacher or something, he'll tell you. And I usually talk to him first. And a lot of times he'll say, well, I don't know, but I'll talk to some of the guys and see. A lot of times I'll do it on the phone first. Back back when we didn't have cell phones, I'd get on my house line. I'd have the office, long-distance phone bill you ever seen. From <laughs> calling all them people up there for a month, talking to different managed areas. And, you know, and then the next step... If you don't even find out where Biggins at, and you say, "Well, I know probably in Northern Illinois or in this managed area, there's got to be it's a big remote area, and there's got to be something back there," then I'd I'd get in the woods, walk every day, daylight to dark. You can't walk too much. <clears throat> you ever shot a deer and started tracking it, and it takes you through some of the best funnels and some of the best thickets and around some of the best deer sign you've ever seen. Well, if that's the case, you ain't done enough work in the spring. You should have done seeing all of that. Most people just don't do enough work and enough walking and enough looking to find what they need to find. You might find a big shed or you might find some huge rubs and or a big scrape with, with some old tracks in it. That's if you if you go just after the rut, and that's the best time to scout. And and then. If they hadn't shedded yet, you can put up your cameras. You can go to two or three different areas in the same part of the state and put up some cameras. I'm telling you, I have ate my weight in cheese and crackers after these old bucks. I drive up there and drive all over Illinois to different places. It is extremely hard work to do it right, fellas, but I'm not betting on luck, and I'm not going to kill a buck on luck. I want to kill one on purpose because I put in the work. Yeah, I think, Bobby, that's an excellent point. Again, Jacob here. Um, and that's probably one thing when I'm looking at kind of where I want to go in Illinois, 
um, is like you said, doing a little bit more research and really talking to more people, boots on the ground up there, uh, some of the area managers and the game wardens and everybody else like that, and try to set, try to put yourself in the right area and don't just pick a property blindly to go just to go, but like you said, kind of do a little more research and talk to some people and try to figure out what you can find out up there. But the question is, if I talk to somebody up there and get that information, so say you know, say a game warden or somebody puts me on like, hey, they've been seeing a, a really nice buck, you know, really, you know, say, say I'm throwing a number out, say a, a one. 170, 180, okay? Now, listen, I'll, I'll tell you right now, Bobby, I'll be the first one to go to Illinois and shoot a 135-inch steer. But, <laughs> but in, in this situation... Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, hold on. Oh, Bobby, I don't... It's been disgusting. I, <laughs> I've been talking here to the wrong person. <laughs> but, but listen, hold on. I, I have wasted a lot of my – listen, my throat's getting hoarse anyway, and I ain't go to this subject. And listen, the, the woods is – don't worry then. Go to any managed area you want to go to. Them's the, them's the good two-and-a-half-year-olds, and they're they're running all over the woods, Jacob. So – so let me just back up and, and tell you any managed area will work for you and just go anywhere. <laughs> so at the first gun of heifer that comes up, just go ahead and shoot him because now they're out there. <laughs> they're out there. <laughs> if you start talking to rangers about that twice, dear, then uh, they're going to look at you kind of cross-eyed. Well, Bobby, if he's been shooting two-and-a-half-year-olds, I don't know what he's actually been shooting. <laughs> But now I'm going to tell you something. Still got if spots. you'll settle, if you'll settle for 130, you'll never shoot a 150 because there's a lot more 130s out there than 150s. Or if you shoot a 150, it'll be by luck because if there's 10 times more 130s out there than 150s, and they generally is, then one of them 130s is going to come to you 10 times percent chance that he'll come to you before a 150. And if you'll settle for a 150. You'll never shoot a 180 because there's probably five 150s or six of them out there for every 180. So if you want to go shoot that, go ahead. But now I would advise, why in the world would you put in the time and effort and hard work and setting like you got to set? Well, you won't have to do all that, though. Let me pack it up. <laughs> you can probably party about every night and go out and hunt half a day and kill what you <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you what. Well, Bobby, let me, let me let, okay, not to derail the conversation, but okay, let's let's get back on topic. We're killing big deer. We're trying to kill 180 in here. Okay, so listen, let me say this. If you get the intel, so say I get the intel from a game order or biologist, someone tells me, yes, there is that quality buck. I've seen it on this property. I've seen it on this side of the property, whatever it is. Once you have that intel, what's the next step? So, like, I get that intel, I'll go up there, maybe for some scouting trips or something. Like, what are you trying to put, you know, boots on the ground? What are you trying to find that tells you truly there is that quality of buck in an area? Well, I want to start. If he's seen it more than once, I want to start where he's seen it across the road. If he's seen it more than once. If he's only seen it once, then I'm not so excited. One time it's an accident, twice is a pattern, and three times is a habit. You're in his core area if he's seen him three times. Fellas, if there's crop fields, and they generally is, or food plots in the area, on that managed area, then the first thing I do, particularly in the area he's seen the deer, I'll go up in the spring, and I will walk around all the fields. And they will be 
big stripes there if he's in the area. Them bucks don't want to keep their stripes and their presence secret, so they'll come out at night. Now, that's at night, of course, and they'll go around them fields and make big stripes and have big tracks, and there'll be a big overhanging limb with a lot of damage. I start right there, and when I find that on a particular crop field or food plot, I start working my way back up into the ridges and up into the woods, and uh, I start I start looking for the sign coming to the trails to the field. The sign will backtrack. It uh, they won't just be a big stripe at the field. If you get on the right corridor, the right travel corridor coming down to the field, you'll say, oh, here's a, here's a, another another good stripe with it. Looks like that same track in it. And you just back him on up and back him on up, and you get you get back a few hundred yards, and you maybe more. It's according to the land, and you. You find that you find some tight funnels that to put your cameras in in October is is what you do. To put your cameras on in October. This podcast is supported by Hunting Exchange. In this day and age, we all know it is a struggle to sell hunting equipment on large social media platforms, and that's where Hunting Exchange steps in. Hunting Exchange is an app for iOS and Android built by Sears Hunters that gives you a one-stop shop to buy and sell your hunting gear. Whether you're looking to sell your bow, broadheads, technical apparel, stands or saddles, or anything in between, this secure platform allows you to buy and sell gear with confidence. As a buyer, each dollar you spend is insured by PayPal, and as a seller, there are no hidden charges like other platforms, and listing items is also free. Gone are the days of having listings removed from Facebook and worrying about being banned and removed from groups for wanting to sell something as simple as your bow or knives. So head on over to the App Store or Google Play and experience a new hassle-free way to buy and sell hunting gear by downloading the Hunting Exchange app today. Silence your setup and shave weight with the Hasmore Silent Seat. The Hasmore Silent Seat is a hammock-style seat designed to replace your climber's bulky factory seat. We all know how important it is to stay silent when you're moving in on that weary old buck in bow season. These seats are great for bow hunters. Not only do they make climbing quieter and easier, but the seat silently slides back when you stand to shoot. These are extremely comfortable and you will not miss your loud and bulky factory seat. Check out the link in the description or go to hasmore.net and use the code SO15 for 15% off. One thing I, I know you and me talked about this a little bit um, is like that, you know, that big buck's going to have a certain size track in most cases. Like you're rarely going to find a, a really big deer with a small track and you're rare, rarely going to find a, a really small deer with a big track. So pretty much big deer are going to have a big track and that's a big factor kind of walking those field edges, stuff like that. And trying to backtrack him to an area that's got that kind of funnel that you can then put trail camera on and have success, you know, catching them. And I think that's one thing that, you know, is a struggle for me as well is like you find that big track and it's like trying to put yourself in the right position to put that trail camera out to be able to get him on camera and confirm based off the sign you're seeing that it's truly the kind of buck and the quality of buck that you're trying to chase. Yeah, the track is an extension of the skeletal system, and a big track usually always means a big deer. Now you got to make sure it's the deer of the ranger. They could be a, a, a big old deer, you know, fully mature, uh, field dress 250 that might not score but 100, 150 inches. So you got to put the camera, you got to put the camera out, and make sure that's the one he's seen if he truly thinks it's a 180 class and up. <clears throat> I'll just tell you, it just takes a tremendous amount of work. But I hadn't found that a lot of places has got a 250 and a 180 working working the fields. 
Bucks are not territory. The only time a deer in its whole life cycle is territory is a doe when they're fawning. But still, the 150-inch deer, the rack, the rack is a status symbol, and the rack is for fighting, and that's for it's for the rut. It's for the breeding purpose. That's why they shed every year a, a buck, a big buck, dominant buck with a bigger rack might be in a fight and break two or three times and. And then if he didn't shed, he'd break two or three next year. And before you know it, he'd have the smallest rack. He'd have a busted up rack and something, a three and a half year old that hadn't been fighting busted up could challenge him. That's why a rack comes back every year with new tines and fresh and, and a little bigger. So anyway, I'm getting off the subject here. It, Like I said, it just takes a tremendous amount of work and effort and a lot of cameras back before cameras. I would hunt a big track, and it'd be a big-bodied deer usually, but sometimes the rack wouldn't be really what I wanted to put my my effort into. But now I can get a picture and, and see if that's the case. Understand that a deer might look big in the picture. You may think that's a monster. His rack may actually look large compared to his body, and, of course, a wide-angle camera, when they're facing you, they usually do anyway, but you kind of learn over the years, and you might say, well, now, that deer has a really big rack. But you have to add a disclaimer there. You have to say that deer has a big, really big rack compared to his body. So if you go to that stripe where you got his picture, say, or a funnel, and you, and you look and you find a track that is just average or below average, then you're probably looking at a deer that you would have ground shrinkage if you shot him because deer are just like people. Some have big bodies and some don't. And if it's average sized deer with a 150-inch rack, it's going to look like a monster on camera. But you've got to make sure that the body's there too. There's just a, a lot involved in it and a lot of work and and. Like I said, if that ranger or somebody has seen the deer cross the road three times at a particular spot, I'm not looking to the fields. I'm not going to the fields and tracking that deer back. I'm starting right there. Bobby, I wanted to ask about something you just mentioned a second ago where you said that you might look at his track and see a big track, but that you know might mean he has a big body, but maybe not a big rack. Is there any other sign that you look at that might tell you anything about his rack like do you examine rubs to try to find out if he has the kind of rack that you're looking for no fellas you can't you, you can't do that but now you can tell a lot about rubs you cannot they ain't a person in the world can tell you if a big track has a big rack but from the personal signs that you've if i get a ranger saying hey i've seen a big buck in this area in this food plot a couple of times and he looks like a 180 and I get in there and find a big stripe, a big mature buck stripe, you can tell the difference. I mean, it's going to be pawed deep and have a serious limb over it. And if I find that with a big track in it, then that's where I'm starting. And I'm going to circle that field and walk all the trails until I find the trails with a big sign coming down to the field. He's going to have it. And I'm going to assume that's a big rack, just from the personal side. But until I put my cameras up, I'm, I'm not going to know for sure. But if I see, if, if a ranger or somebody's seen, let's say they've seen a big buck, this, this may surprise you, but let's just say they told me three times last November or October, they saw a big buck cross at a specific spot down there right 
right around that oak tree, one side or the other, all three times I've seen that deer cross. I'm setting up right there. My goodness, what else could you ask for? Some people will say, well, I'm going to back off the road and put a camera up. Listen, that's like that's like getting three pictures of the deer in the same place. You're going to hunt him. Don't, don't overlook the obvious. A lot of times people do. Uh, two times is going to spark my interest, and I don't care if them signs are at night or in the daytime. I have found it don't matter. If if some if I've spotted the deer, I got three pictures of him at night in a certain funnel, then I'm going to kill him in the daytime. It's not like he's not going to, during the rut. He that is his core area. That's the main funnel he's using. And during the rut, I'm going to kill that deer. So that's just I don't care if it's at night or in the daytime. If he's if he's seen that deer two or three times. Now if he's here's another thing. If he's seen it two or three times in let's say a quarter of a mile or a two a couple hundred yard stretch, then I'm going to get that deer too. But I'm going to follow him back. I'm gonna I'm gonna find those trails or corridors he's on. I'm gonna walk one of them, then I'm gonna walk the other, and I'm gonna follow them back to I bring them together at a funnel, and that's where I'm gonna set up. But if they're within a 20-yard stretch or a 30-yard stretch, I'm gonna kill that deer right there. I ain't worried about nothing else. I ain't gonna start scouting. I ain't gonna walk the woods out. Why would I? If I get a picture of a monster buck three times in the same place, then I'm gonna kill him and I'll kill him I'll kill him on that road. I don't care if it's on the road or not. One of the greatest bucks I ever killed in my life was bedding within forty forty yard thirty yards of one of the busiest highways in America in the Midwest and actually in Illinois. He was hundred and eighty three inch deer. So it don't big deer are where you find them. They might be a managed area you may go to a managed area that looks good on a map and that's remote, and it may not have a 180 deer on it for last for the next three years. And you may go to a small little spot or a spot by the road, and he may have a giant on it. You, you just talk to people and, and and do your own looking. But now big bucks are where you find them. You don't have to necessarily walk back a mile to kill them. They may be they may be right beside a major road. Do not overlook the obvious and don't overthink it. Let the sign and the sightings dictate where you hunt. Fellas, if we don't get on this subject you want me to talk on, we may never we may never get through with it here. But whatever you all want to do now, well, I'm just Well I'm Bobby just... Bobby, we were thinking about that. While we're just on this topic, let's keep talking about what we're talking about here and then depending on how we're feeling, maybe transition over to this other topic, which we'll we'll talk about in just a little bit. Uh, and if not, maybe just have to you know do the second recording with you because both topics we're very excited about. But this is really interesting, especially when it comes to what we're kind of dealing with right now as well with kind of finding these areas and how we're trying to pinpoint where we're trying to hunt in Illinois. <clears throat> um, so that, that's a really good point, what you've been discussing so far. Uh, but one thing that you mentioned just now that I, I thought was kind of interesting, I think Mike's got a question on it. It's just like, you know, hunting where that big buck's at, not always thinking like he's always a mile plus on the road, but, you know, going off with the signs telling you and kind of going off that more so than just like, hey, I have to be, you know, a certain distance off the road before I feel comfortable hunting uh, because that's what a big buck's going to do because a lot of times that might not be the case. Like you said, might have one right underneath your nose, right next to a major highway or something like that that people are just completely overlooking. Uh, and that's a that's a huge part. We've talked about that quite yeah. a bit. Yeah, so one thing we've touched on quite a bit here lately, especially with these uh, GPS studies, is a lot of these deer are bedded right next to the roads. And even last year I was hunting a big buck called 
we we uh, named the wizard, and I actually put a camera up pointing uh, right at a road, and it was probably it was actually where you parked at a gate, and it was only about fifty yards from the gate. And this deer crossed within eyesight of my truck on one morning when I'd went in to hunt him. And I mean, that just, that kind of thing just, you know, is really eye opening just how, uh, I guess frequently they use these areas when most people are pushing really deep, uh, these days, I think a lot of these deer just know where the other hunters are not going to go and they're, you know, going up next to the roads. Well, that's part of it. That's part of it. Uh, fellas. People really disturb the woods going back far. I mean, every step they take is going through deer territory. And so they're, they're disturbing deer all the way back. And deer learn voids where they don't run into the human predator. They, they, and it can be side a road that's because it's overlooked. Or maybe it don't have a good parking spot there or something of that nature. But I think, I think part of it is, too, there, there's a growing number of coyotes nearly everywhere you go and a coyote a buck that's run down from the rut can be pulled down and killed by a coyote they're they're scared of coyotes and especially a pack of them i've i've got akc rabbit dogs and i compete a lot and i've got a pretty big place here and during the spring and summer and most of the year, the biggest population of my rabbits are here in my yard and in the little thickets right around the yard. And I can go back further and hardly find any way. You got bobcats and you, you got coyotes, you got wild dogs, you got predators that don't want to be around me and the rabbits learn that. And I think it's, it's something to do with the deer too. I think, I think that not only I think the coyotes and, and uh, the predators don't bother them as much right around civilization either. So I think that's part of it. And like you said, more people are pushing back. And I'll just tell you, it's got a lot to do with the habitat. Big woods don't have much for a whitetail. They're creatures of uh, diverse habitat. They're, you look for them like you do a rabbit is the best habitat for them. They like to... They like diversity, they like the thickets that people make uh, around their house. They like the uh, clearings. They they like woods openings, and and they they like some big woods. They like the food plots. They they clover clover in your yard or in your pasture field. Uh, big woods, big deep woods is is not the perfect habitat for deer. And I'll tell you something else. A deer that does grow up back in the deep woods and lives his life back there is going to be 15% smaller on the rack anyway because he's just not getting the protein and the nourishment he needs that a deer living closer to humans and crop fields and, and pastures is going to get. So there's a lot to think about there. Uh, but I've always said a big deer is where you find them. Don't think they're going to necessarily be deep. Uh, they they can escape most people right under their nose. It's just according. There's a few predator, human predators out there that can get them, no matter where they're at. But they're they're not necessarily deep in the woods. Now, if you find one deep and you find big sign deep, put your camera up deep. If he's there, hunt him there. But if he's by the road, do not absolutely do not neglect to hunt him where somebody. I don't care if he's crossing a flat top highway. If somebody's seen him cross three times in a row, and that sign's reliable. 
put your camera up and go down there and, and walk in the woods on both directions and, and look for sign and see if you can confirm that. Uh, don't be afraid to hunt him right there. Uh, I'll tell you, it, it, it'll surprise you. I was hunting a wildlife managed Murray at one time in southern Illinois. I mean the very southern part of the state. And there's a safety area on one side and a hunting area on the other side. And the uh, interstate, Interstate 40 went right, divided the safety area from the area you can hunt. <clears throat> and I got in there, looked around, and the first thing, it was November, and the first thing I noticed, they wanted a lot of dead deer on the road. And I wondered how they was crossing back and forth. Because at night, there's a campground there I was in, and now them big bucks would be in there chasing those all around that campground. One was a booner, and I got to wondering how in the world they're getting back and forth if they're crossing the interstate like that, and as much as they was coming back and forth, they'd be killed. And then there was a road that I thought, though, well, it must be beside the road. There was a road that circled around, went under the interstate, and went over the hunting side. <clears throat> well, I looked on both sides of the road and looked around. I just didn't see the sign. So I got back in the interstate and I drove it. And there was a, another bridge or whatever you want to call it. We drove. I drove over another area. And I looked down. It was an old railroad track that they had taken up. And I went down there and there was buck sign and deer sign everywhere. And them deer... <clears throat> was going back and forth at the interstate right there. And I sat there looking at traffic on the interstate hunting a big deer. And uh, I nearly killed him. Uh, it's just the wind was kind of tough the day I was about to kill him and he smelled me. But I nearly got a 170, I mean, and I could have tossed a rock underhanded up on the interstate. So absolutely do not get caught into this you got to go real deep and get way back away from people. Now, do I like hunting with throwing traffic over my head? Absolutely not. Do I like killing 170-inch deer? I do. I do. I do. So you got to use your mind. you you got to be open, and you can't get locked into one train of thought on whitetail because they don't. So if you do, then you put yourself in a box that they're not in. Cruiser Saddles is the newest addition to companies supporting this podcast. Cruiser is the maker of saddles and saddle hunting gear. Uh, me and Jacob actually met Chad, the owner, at our Bows and Brews event in March of 2020. We were demoing a lot of different saddles there from a lot of different companies, and he showed up with his products, which were brand new at the time, and everybody there was extremely impressed with them, including me and Jacob. We ended up getting some of the saddles for this past hunting season and used them all year from, basically, we started hunting in August and hunted until February. No complaints. Really liked them. The durability was there. The comfort was there. The wearability was there, you know, walking in and out to the stand. So we're very impressed. You can go back to some of the episodes from last year and actually hear us, you know, live through the season talking about these things. We talked about them a lot in the podcast from last year's season. Just really impressed, and we think you would like them too. So go to their website and check them out. We ran the XC. Orders ship the same day or next day unless otherwise indicated, and you get free shipping on orders over $300. We really appreciate Cruiser for supporting this show, and you guys go show them some support as well. This podcast is supported by Mark's Outdoors. 
If you're from around Birmingham, you know of a, a staple in the hunting community here, and that would be Mark's Outdoors. They've been in business in the same location for over 40 years, family owned and operated, and they have a reputation for being one of the best bow shops in the southeast. As we inch closer and closer to deer season, if you haven't already, it's time to dust off that bow and make sure that she's ready to roll for this hunting season. Go stop by Mark's Outdoors and check out their archery counter with Mark and Robbie, two guys I've known for years, excellent bow techs. They've worked on my bow since I started bow hunting. They got all the knowledge and accessories that you need to get ready to rock for this bow season. While you're in there, also make sure you check out their gun counter. They got a ton of nice rifles for everything from AR platforms to nice deer rifles and a bunch of nice shotguns as well. They also have one of the best knife selections in Alabama. I mean, really nice stuff. All kinds of custom knives in there, and their ammo selection is just unbeatable as well. We're thrilled to have Marks Outdoors on board, and we thank them for supporting the podcast. Now we're going to ask you guys to go support them. Bobby, let me ask you this. Well, or first let me say this. It's funny you were talking about that crossing underneath the intersection or the interstate right there. An uncle of mine who actually got me into hunting, uh, he had a club, a hunting club he was in down uh, in South Central Alabama, and their club was on both sides of the interstate, and there was a uh, canal or like a drainage that ran underneath the interstate. It was like an old creek drainage, but it had a, a pretty large area underneath it that the deer would cross, and he found that sign, almost like this tunnel underneath the, uh, the bridge and everything, and you know, ran trail cameras there, found some really nice bucks, and he actually killed a couple of really nice bucks. Now, they weren't 170s, but for Alabama, they were very, very respectable bucks. And uh, in that spot, like hunting it as a tight pinch point and during the rut, it was an absolute unbelievable location to hunt. So it's kind of funny how you brought that up and how you found it up in Illinois as well. Well, most people overlook the obvious, you know. I walked, I walked through the woods one time in a managed area that was cattle farmed in the past and had some old road up fields in it, and there was a section of fence, I bet you, 100 yards, 150 yards in one direction, still standing, and where the gate had been was an opening. And it was a pretty pretty stout, pretty good fence still in, in pretty good shape. And the deer sign going through that opening was unbelievable. And I looked around, and there was not a single mark of a tree stand anywhere in that opening. It's just amazing how people don't use their minds and they overlook the obvious. Sometimes it may be too obvious to them, and then they want to go back further or want to do this or that. Let the sign, don't overthink it. Let the sign and the situation dictate what you do. you got to have that in your arsenal. Uh, be willing to hunt wherever the sign and the, the uh, information that you get tells you to hunt. you got to be willing to do it. I... You won't believe the people that's out there deer hunting. And and one year I was, and this farmer's wife said, "Well, I seen a big old buck the last two mornings go down that field right there." Well, I had good stands back in the woods, situation was hunting, and and overlooked it the first time, and the second time it perked my interest. And the third day, she said she seen it. The fourth day, I was sitting there and I killed a heck of a buck. You just you, you. so many people would not pay no more attention to that than nothing. But you've got to learn to you got to learn to use your head, you know, when deer hunting. You can't just now it's hard work. Don't get me wrong, hard work pays off. But the hard work can be close to the road just as well as it can be a mile back in the woods, fellas. By the time you get in, if you hunt a mile back in the woods, by the time you Walk out, you're disturbing deer every inch of the way, and probably some of them, you're bumping the one you're hunting and going back in. And time you get back there, 
I don't care what kind of means you use not to sweat. You're going to sweat some, and you're going to sit there and build up a holder all day. And then by the time you get back out, if you leave it dark like I would and do, time you get back out and you get your stuff ready for the next day and get in bed, and then you head out early in the morning to get back out before daylight, and you, you, you walk another hour, and I'm telling you, Hunting hard, hunting right is hard work anyway, and you add that other element to it, and it may, it may get the best of you. You may just not be able to continue like you need to. So, don't think that that's necessarily what you need to do to kill a big deer. You got to hunt them where they're at. And so, if they're deep, fine. I've killed some big deer deep. I've hunted hard like that. I, I can't do it as much probably now at my age as I, I used to, but I. I'm still in pretty good health. I cut timber of a chainsaw every day, and I'm I'm in pretty good shape. But I and mentally too, uh, you know, I talked about all the works involved and and setting daylight to dark. When when you've got a lot of biggins on your wall, you got to step back and and say, Do I want to put my body through hanging stands at night, moving them at night, uh, checking trail cameras after I get through hunting, and setting daylight to dark and as you get older, you get colder, you know, and maybe the weather's below zero. And you just, you've got to be dedicated to do it right, and I'm not going to do it by luck. So there's a lot to think about when you when you consider going after a big buck. You've got to know that you're mentally and physically tough enough to follow through. And if you are, and if you've got the intelligence and the, the know-how, the knowledge to do it, uh, then, then you'll get him. You, you're not betting on luck. Most people that don't get the deer they're after just don't work hard enough. Fellas, without effort, something awful takes place in a person's life. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So you just got to decide if you're going to put the effort in or not. So, so Bobby, let me ask you this. Um, you, one thing that you've talked about, and I've always wondered this, is, you know, you're trying to find that buck you, you find, you know, based off intel from what you're hearing from, from, uh, you know, people that live in the area, you know, you're putting your kind of boots on the ground. When you're finding signs, so you say you find some sign that you're like, okay, this is from a, a big deer. You know, you find big tracks that, you know, those big scrapes, rub stuff like that. What kind of sign are you possibly keying in on to then figure out where you need to put a stand location at? I know funnels are everything. But if you're finding a lot of sign, do, are you worried that it's possibly nighttime sign, or during the rut, it just it doesn't matter for you based off those locations? It don't matter. It it, it don't matter if it's night sign or daytime during the rut. If he's frequent in that area during, if I've got three pictures of him at night one place, let's say four pictures of him at night one place, and any time during the month of October or November, if I've got four pictures of him at night in one place and two in the daytime in the other place, I'm going to hunt where I got the pictures of him at night because those night pictures will turn into day pictures when he gets on his feet during daylight hours. We've been talking a lot about uh, basically intel that you might have from a camera or a local guy who might have seen a buck several times in a row. I'm kind of wondering about if you're going purely based off sign, let's say you you might have a picture of a deer in a certain area. Are there any kind of things that are just sign specific, maybe some stuff that you did before you use cameras a lot that tell you that this is the funnel that he uses the most, or this is the funnel where you can actually kill him in daylight? Well, if, if, if I know he's a target deer and, you know, I look at the damage done to the stripes and the size of the track, 
you know, generally the a big material bug likes to take his rack and break that limb up. And he wants a pretty big limb, you know. He wants it to size his thumb, and there's several things he wants. He wants it up about chest or head high. He wants it high off the ground, and and he does a lot of damage. And then he paws the ground. A young bug just does not have the power in his shoulders and the weight to dig that ground up a couple of inches like a material bug. And then anytime you see that damage, you look at the track. Now, if that track's small, okay, he's got a muscular body, he's fully mature, but a fully mature buck may dress 145 fellas, or it may dress 200 pound. I want to hunt the one with 200 pound. I want to hunt the one that. So I look at the damage, and then I'll go to the straight, the uh, funnel, and fellas, the, there'll be two, three, four trails, if it's a good tight ditch funnel or creek crossing. There'll be four or five or six trails coming to it. I will walk each one of those trails. And if I find a big rub on one, okay, I think that deer may have used this once this year and he tore his tree up good and it's a big tree. And then I might not find, another, then I might walk a different trail and, and find a scrape, a good scrape used and, and then maybe a rub and might walk another trail and find another rub. And the average person might say, a normal person, <laughs> he might say, well, there's a rub on this trail and a scrape on this one and a, a rub over here, but that really ain't that good. I think I'll look for another funnel. Well, fellas, if you put all of that sign together on one trail, you would be very excited about it. So you got to walk each one of those corridors or trails coming to the, coming to the funnel and hunt there. But I don't I, I don't necessarily hunt funnels. Big bucks are where you find them. I love to hunt funnels. Funnels is my number one thing to hunt, and I'll sit on the funnel with no sign if I know there's a deer I want to shoot in the area. But I may have a hot scrape line that's out in the open woods with no funnel or a, a hot, a hot uh, rub line. I look at them the same. They're both the same. It don't matter. And... I may decide to put my camera up there. If I ain't got a camera, I may decide to I may decide to hunt him there. You hunt them where they're at. They they don't necessarily have to be going to a funnel to hunt them because I talk so much about hunting funnels. That don't necessarily mean that I don't hunt the wherever the sign is. I let the sign dictate where I hunt. But now I would rather hunt a funnel. A lot rather hunt a funnel, especially the people that's hunting a certain age group or a certain size deer instead of a specific deer. They'll be a lot better off hunting funnels. If I'm hunting a specific deer and I find his sign and verify it with cameras in the open woods with no funnel and he's got a rub line or a scrape line or a corridor he's traveling and there'll be scrapes on it, my rubs. I will hunt that deer there. I won't worry about, well, i got to find a funnel he's going to. I'll hunt him right there, and I will hunt the rub or the scrape that shows the most use because sometimes he'll approach a certain area at different angles and different corridors, but the one that shows the most use, his travel corridor is intersecting that one most often. So that's where I'll set up and hunt him. Well, one thing that I wonder about with that is when you say like a rub or a scrape with the most use, um, 
I'm kind of wondering what that looks like on the ground. You know, is that a, is that just like a, a humongous scrape that that's massive with a bunch of licking branches? Is it a scrape that's dug deep into the ground? Uh, is it you know multiple uh, intersections of trails coming together? I mean, does that sign have to be extremely fresh? I'm just kind of I'm trying to get a picture of what that actually looks like on the ground. Can you like dive into that a little bit more? Well, you're exactly right. If it's if it's a straight line and it just shows the leaves are piled back and each one of them shows the same use, that buck has probably come through there one time. If it's a rub line that shows trees rubbed on on one side and, and not a whole lot, that buck has probably come through there one time. I probably You'll probably not get a picture of him there. Or you might get one picture of him there. He may have passed through one time. But I'm talking about a rub or strafe line. When I speak of rub and strafe line, I'm talking about one that is on his travel corridor. A rub out there in the woods by itself that's not associated with at least a faint trail, just a, he may have stopped and rubbed that, one, rubbed that tree one time, or he may have made that strafe as he passed through, and he may never come back to it. If, if it's not associated with some kind of travel corridor that shows use, then it's not worth my time. So I'm talking about something that he's at least coming through enough that at least a faint trail is forming. He didn't just walk through there one time. I'm not interested in that. I'm talking about something that shows use. And then if it does, then I'll find the stripe that shows the most use. And fellas, you don't have to be an expert at you don't overthink it. You can look at it and see that it's it's been used more. It's larger. It's piled more. It's piled deeper. Uh, maybe one or two of the other ones are a little bit old. It's pretty obvious. I've never seen a straight line didn't have at least one that was used more often. And it may be used more often for another reason. The does may have started coming in heat and using it, and then and then the buck is going to use it a lot more, and he's going to go straight to that one and maybe even bypass the other ones unless he's coming straight down the corridor. So it don't matter why it's used more. That's where he's at more often, and that's all I want to know. Do uh, do these corridors, do they have to have good cover for you to hunt them during the daytime? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Where the sign dictates I hunt, I hunt. It, it, it can be open woods or it can be a thicket. I've heard people say... You get, you got to find a sign in a thick area because he won't be in the open woods in daylight. Uh, fellas, I ain't found that to be true. I've killed a lot of big deer in open woods. Uh, that one big and I killed at Salome Springs years ago was in a, a drove of very large pine trees, and it was open. You could see several hundred yards in it. You hunt you you, 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 you hunt him where he's at. Where he's showing you he's at, that's where you hunt him, and you don't overthink it. That's overthinking something. Uh, a lot of this conversation has been related around the rut. Is that your primary focus on killing these big deer, or you know, is there any other way that you find that you can kill these deer outside of the rut? Well, I ain't got the privilege. I don't to have a. Now, listen, I'm not putting these guys down. That's been able to been lucky in the hunting industry and in the hunting world, and been able to have some nice big farms that's private, and they don't get in the woods much, and they sit in their food plots, and they can kill deer all year long and and early in the year that's great i'm proud of them i'm happy for them but i just don't have that situation i'm patch pocket poor here i i have to i have to hunt public ground and up ground other people hunts and i just can't afford a big lease or can't afford to buy a big farm and hunt it like that so 
I have to hunt deer that's used to being hunted. So yes, the rut, the late pre-rut, say I, in Tennessee and really in the Midwest, uh, I, I pick October 25th when, unless, unless a siding shows me otherwise. Every now and then you'll have a buck that, that moves around during daylight outside the rut. And, and when the siding shows you that, get on him and get on him quick. But I don't have that. So I want to hunt and I want to hunt my deer during the rut because they're disturbed and, and they know the human predators out there and it takes something real special for them to expose themselves during daylight hours. If I could hunt at night legally, you could you could kill them all year. You could kill them all year, but that ain't the case in pressured deer with pressured deer. You're gonna to have to you're gonna to have to wait to the rudder. You're gonna you're gonna run them off because they're coming through all right, but they're doing a lot of their traveling and scraping, rub making at night, and uh, that's just now that's my observation. And I've been pretty successful at this game, so. I, I, that's what works for me. Now, in some of these states nowadays where you can bait, uh, if it's legal, I ain't saying a thing about it, but if a person wants to set up over corn, fine. You might, I, I don't know that, but you might be able to kill one, say, in mid-October, even a mature buck. I kind of doubt it, but if you put some corn maybe in the thicket, you might can. Of course, you're not, you don't have to know how to hunt the deer in, in a situation if you're if you're in that situation. All you got to do is know how to shoot one. You don't really have to know how to how to hunt and that's fine if people choose to do that it's legal and and i'm happy for them but that's just not how i choose to hunt and i don't choose even if i could probably hunt a big deer in velvet or hunt deer out of the rut i've killed one out of the rut and i might if it was a really old deer like the seven and a half year old i killed and i wanted to but fellas i just love hunting them bucks when they got them big old necks and they're running through the woods wild-eyed and they're full of testosterone and i just love seeing them come through the woods with the hard horns and and they, they got that attitude about them that's that's what i really enjoy so but that like i said it's not the only reason i hunt them then in pressured areas that's the most productive time to hunt them so earlier when you were talking about uh walking out these trails is that during the rut or is that postseason? Well, it's according to the situation. Uh, very seldom do I go to an area uh, that I hadn't been because very seldom do I want to hunt a deer I don't have a history with. I want to pattern a particular deer. That's, you know, everybody gets certain kicks out of their sport, and that's what that's what I want to do. I want to kill a certain deer. I want to be familiar with that deer. So, but if if I went to a new area and, and had to hunt it, didn't have nowhere else to hunt, and the rut was coming on. I would walk them then, but you can disturb deer once and walk it thoroughly. Just don't go back day after day. Just daylight to dark, walk it thoroughly and get out. He'll accept that, but he won't accept two or three disturbances. He'll move. But all things being equal, if I had my druthers, I would certainly rather do it after the season, of course. I want to do it as soon after the rut as possible, and I'm preparing for next year, not that year. That's kind of how I do things. There's other ways to do it and kill big deer, of course. But I've been pretty lucky, you know, especially hunting mostly managed areas, you know. Uh, Bobby, but, I, I want you to, uh, if you can, 
I'd love to hear like a specific story of a buck. Uh, I, I, I've heard you've got like a good uh, story of like a Tennessee deer, I think maybe, where you basically located the deer and then to when you killed it. I mean, can you kind of give us a walk through the story? Yeah, Bobby, look, I'll help Andrew out. Bobby, you told me a story of the buck that uh, had, I think it was the biggest trek you've ever seen in Tennessee. And it was a really big deer that you killed. Uh, and it was a pretty interesting story. I know it's a story I think you had written about as well. And uh, if, you, if you would kind of maybe walk us through that hunt, that particular deer, and kind of how you went about locating him, but all the way to up killing him, and kind of what that progression looks like. To kind of give the listeners an idea of really truly how hard it is for you to kind of find, locate, but also kill that deer. Because sometimes it could take you know weeks, and sometimes it could take years before you get an opportunity to kill that buck. Well, I don't know if you're talking about uh, the seven and a half year killed or the, the real wide and I killed. Let's see. You told me you had the biggest trek that you've ever seen up there. Okay, that was a real big wide deer I killed. Uh, okay, here I am. I'm I'm working out here on a let's see. I'm, well, I'm working in, in a prison system out here on the mountain, not too far from my house, and there's a lot of uh, state forest, public ground around it, pretty remote ground. And then a friend of mine come up to me and said, Bobby, we went over there to the shooting range right in that green field and found a found a huge shed. And I thought, well, you know, huge is he said, This is huge now. I'm telling you, it's 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 got a lot of mass and it's a big shed and I said, Well, I'd like to look at it and uh he brought it and showed me and it did. It was it's a massive, real real long main beam, but the most impressive thing is I got to looking at it and the rack went way out before it turned back in, and I told him, I said, that deer is at least 25, 26 inches wide. It ended up being 28 inches inside. And he said, are you kidding me? And I said, no, that is an extremely wide deer. So that was in February, late February. So I started right then. I, I, walked, I walked deep, and I walked close, and I walked that area out as best I could walk at the ridge where the the ridge where the uh, shed was actually found on one side of that ridge is a blacktop road drops off pretty steep to the road and really it was so steep that there was hardly any deer dropping off so I knew the deer had to be dropping off the other side in this big gulf and I knew he had to be going in that direction so I walked the backbone of the ridge several times and I found a place where I found two or three corridors where they could go off, but I found one that really had my interest because right at the top of it was several scrapes and rubs. And a lot of times before a buck changes terrain, it put spend some time there smelling and looking because it's going into a blind area because it's changing terrain. And that's what I was looking for. And so I figured that's where he was going off. So I traveled off into the gulf and the sign diminished as oftentimes it does in a situation like that often when you the further you get away from what attracts the deer whether he was i think this deer was eating acorns around that green field at night because a lot of times when you fertilize a field the acorn trees right around it will bear when no no others do and they'll have they'll have more nourishment also so i believe he was coming out not eating acorns so i dropped off the ridge and walked that big remote area that big guff out and walked the ridges out and I just absolutely could not pinpoint anything that tightened them up and had the concentration of sign as th that ridge did about 200 yards from where the shed was found 
And that's another example of you hunt a big deer where you find him. They ain't no use. Once he left that ridge and went off that, went off that into that guff, then the trail spread out and got fainter and fainter. So I, I backed up and I said, I'm going to hunt him right here. And I found a tree and it was bare. It, it didn't have no cover on it. So I cut down another tree about big as my leg, cut it half in two and leaned it up again. It, it was dying anyway and it got me some cover there. And I hunted there and I, the big, them big tracks started showing up in my straight. And they wanted, I didn't have no cameras then. And I hunted him several days and I just... I just wasn't seeing him. I knew eventually I would, but it was going to take a while. Well, a friend of mine just started hunting, didn't know much about it. But he got back there on a strip pit about half a mile, three quarters of a mile away. And he told me, he said, Bobby, there's some big rubs and stripes back on that strip pit. He said, I ain't got a clue how to hunt that deer. And he said, I know you can kill him. You ought to get back there. He said, you think it's the same deer you're hunting? I said, it absolutely could be. And I went back there and I uh, found that big sign all around, all around this strip pit going into a real thick area. And I walked probably for half a day, just in a small area. It wasn't a big area at all. I probably walked for half a day to narrow that down, that sign down and that corridor down and because it was spread out pretty good. And I finally did. I finally found a spot where there was no gravels and terrain it was pushed up there where they stripped and it narrowed everything down and and it took me forever to find that because it was in a real thicket but i set up right there and i think the second morning i hunted that deer there i killed him now it don't happen like that a lot but that's uh that and he ended up being 28 inches wide i wrote the story for north american whitetail magazine that's one of the seven i've had in that magazine and so so I didn't want to do it on my own. Some people are so arrogant. If somebody else comes and tells them, hey, guy, uh, I've seen a deer. Or I've seen some big sign you all check out. Most of them will say, no, I, I know what I'm doing. You know, I'm not so arrogant. I won't listen to other people's information, even the novelist. And also, I, I hunt them where they're at, you know. Uh, like, I would have killed that deer eventually on that green field. It was early in October when I killed him. It was... October 26th or 7th, I'd have probably killed him sometime in November where I was hunting. I have no doubt about it. So there's a lot of lessons to learn there. So, well, Bobby, uh, let me let me interrupt real quick because that's a fascinating story because you said you killed that deer in early October. Is that right? No, October 20, October 6th or 7th. I started hunting about October 23rd. I wasn't hunting quite that early, but it turned really cold, and I thought, since it's cold enough and close enough to the rut, I believe he'll be on his feet. So I first started hunting him on the 23rd, and I killed him, I think, the 27th. That was one of the earliest deer. Most of them are killed around November 1st, 2nd, or 3rd, but that was one of the earlier bucks that I've killed from rut hunting. That was a rut activity buck. I killed him because of the rut. But it was, the 23rd is not too early to hunt one if it turns unseasonably cold. Now, if it's unseasonably warm, I wouldn't even hunt in the 27th or even the 1st of November. I'd have stayed out of there. Now, Bobby, are you focusing more on sign or more where does are bedded at when it's during the rut or where they're frequenting? Or do you find that to be in the same place? I I don't, I don't. The only thing I worry about the does is if I've got a funnel between two 
two areas, home ranges of does. Uh, of course, they're going to be around the crops and around the crop fields or the food plots and the closest thicket to there. If 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 I've got a funnel between two family groups of does, then I'll concentrate on that funnel. I don't hunt the does. I know my buck, and I pattern my buck, and I know what he's doing all through October. I know where he's scraping. I know where he's making his rub lines and advertising himself, and I know where he's at, and I set up on him. I don't set up on the does, or I set up on a funnel he frequents. A lot of people worry about food plots and... Uh, does and uh, where they're feeding on acorns back in the woods. That's okay. You, you, very, very seldom, but occasionally you can, you'll kill one like that, and I have. Uh, put trail cameras on uh, some good acorns falling in an area where I know my big buck was. It has to be in an area where I know he's at. It needs to be in this core area, and I have put up trail cameras and killed deer on feeding sign like that, but fellas, that's not really when I'm hunting that deer, he, he's cruising and traveling cross country, and he ain't going to stop to eat a whole lot. He's he's on the go, and uh, if he's if he's not traveling cross country, if I can get to hunt him early, if the weather turns cold enough, and I can hunt him before he starts moving uh, out of his core area, then I'll get him there on his scrapes or rub line. He'll be making them at night. He'll have a good defined ones. I'll get him there if it turns unseasonably cold and the sign of the cameras is showing me that he's frequented enough. But once the does come in, then I move to the funnels because he's going to be on the go and traveling a lot and a lot and far distances. And the only way to get ahead of him is not hunt sign, you're hunting behind him. The only way to get ahead of him is hunt where he's going to be, and that's going through them funnels. So you're almost separating the two two different hunting styles, one for pretty rut and one for rut. Well, exactly, exactly. But now I'll call it, I call it all the rut movement period. From October 25th through November, I call that all the rut movement period. Now, you may... You may isolate down to pre-rut and breeding phase and cruising phase and all that, but I just call it all the pre-rut. I call it I call it all the rut movement period. That's when they're moving during daylight because of the desire to breed. So, how does your hunting style change from, say, the pre-rut to the rut? Or the pre-rut, I'm hunting. I'm hunting this. I'm generally hunting his sign and stripes. A lot of people tell you they they've hunted stripes and can't kill a mature buck on stripes. Well. They probably found a good stripe line or a good stripe, and they started hunting it when he was still moving down around at night, and they spooked him going in or out, or he got come in there and smelled their scent a time or two where they'd been <coughs> and spooked. But you can kill a big deer on a stripe if you wait until he's doing it at night up until up until that first dose gets close to coming in and the weather turns cold and then he's going to get anxious and get on his feet a little early from october 25th to about november 1st maybe the second in my area plum up to illinois they're going to be on their straight and rud line and they're going to be in a more smaller area but once that first doe comes in then or starts smelling then they're gone looking for her no matter what it takes because they're wanting to find her before another buck does. That's, that's my take on it, fellas. One thing I wanted, I was wondering about, too, is, you know, we talk, and it gets talked about a lot, the whole pre-rut into the rut thing. 
But what about when you get into the later end of the rut? I mean, what kind of changes do you see when the rut's kind of tailing off, everything's kind of settling down, but there's still deer chasing, there's still does coming in? How do your tactics change when it comes to that? The tail end's not the toughest part. The middle of the rut is the toughest part, around the 15th, 16th, when 90% of the does in and 95% of the bucks are locked down. Uh, Every now and then, want to get between does and hit a funnel, but... That's the toughest part. <clears throat> now I found around November 25th, around Thanksgiving, or I've killed some big deer around there. It plumb up the December 1st or 2nd in my area. Not quite as late in Illinois, I don't think. Uh, it's been my observation, but I find when a lot of the does, most of them are going out, uh, that bucks get back on their feet again, and they got another flurry of activity. It ain't a second rut at all. They ain't such a thing as a second rut that people talk about, but they'll get back on their feet looking for that last door or two before she goes out. And and uh, I do the same then as I do during the middle of the rut. I hunt funnels because those deer are ch- cruising. They're looking for that doe. They're not worried about their scrapes or rut line or their trails or their corridors. They're traveling looking for that doe again. And they're forced. A funnel is just a place that they're forced to go through. They run upon a ditch or a body of water, and they got to go around it. And that will put more than that will put him by you more than once, or more mature bucks by you than than anything else. I'll make a I'll make an exception here to this. Uh, in the Midwest or places, it gets extremely cold, and there's some good food plots. Standing corn or really soybeans is better left in the fields. There's some people killing some big deer outside the rut, after the rut, when it turns really cold coming into food plots and standing corn or soybeans left in the field for the deer. They, you can kill a big deer like that. Usually you might know what deer it is, and then again you might not, but if you know the deer and you've watched him a year or two, you might. I mean, that can happen and you can do that. I don't talk about it. I don't, I don't hunt like that because I don't want to sit in the edge of a field and kill a deer coming in to feed. That's just, I just, I want to get back in the woods and kill them. I, I don't know why, but I just that's just not what flows to my boat. And, and plus, in, in my area, I don't really have access to that. And I've always had limited time for vacation and limited time to hunt. And I'm not going to spend it after the rut. I'm going to spend it when the chances are, in my mind, are the greatest to kill them, and that's going to be in the rut. So that's when I concentrate my efforts. Now, if I didn't have a job and... I was after a particular big deer, and I didn't get him during the rut, and there was a standing corn field or a soybean field a half a mile away, and, and say it's a 200-inch deer, and I really wanted to kill him, and I'm not ruling out the possibility that I might go back up there when the weather turns real cold and, and try to kill that deer. He's more apt in that situation, from what I understand, to come in the middle of the day than he is early or late, but you got to have all that in your arsenal if you want to. Some people do. Some people hunt with a muzzle loader. Some people hunt with a rifle. If the biggest deer in Tennessee was standing out here in the field and it was legal for me, which it would be, I got my sportsman line. I had a rifle here in the house I could shoot him with. I wouldn't kill him. It just you got to you got to do what you got to do what entertains you about the sport. You don't have to live your life for nobody else. So I just. I just want to hunt them during the rut when they're cruising and chasing does and they're wild-eyed and they're they're just they're so majestic. Their their bodies at the the full the full weight and strength, and that's 
everybody has i'm not putting nobody down for hunting deer different don't get me wrong and you might want to have that in your arsenal if you just want to kill deer if you just want to kill a big deer and you don't care if you know the deer or not and sure hunting with a bow hunting with a muzzleloader hunting with a gun hunt them in the after the rut hunt them just that's fine i i'm not i'm not saying anything negative about that it's just not how i choose to do it so, Bobby, let me ask you this. Uh, last week, we had uh, Dr. Michael Chamberlain on the podcast, who's a uh, researcher uh, who's been a part of a couple different – actually, quite a few different uh, GPS collar studies uh, with whitetail deer. I'm, I'm publicly in, uh, especially in Louisiana, and actually, he's working on a study right now in Arkansas. And in the study, we, we talked about this last week on last week's episode, but he talked about during the rut how some bucks – uh, some of the mature bucks would take part in the rut and some others would actually lock down their movement and actually not take part in the first rut, but they would wait for does and doe fawns to come in 28 days later. And then that's when their spike of activity would happen. Now you talk a lot about, again, you're focusing on the primary rut, which would be in November in the States that you hunt in, but have you ever looked at hunting a secondary rut in December when some of these does that haven't been bred in very high deer density areas or some doe fawns possibly come into, you know, heat, uh, have you ever looked at hunting at those times of the year and having success with that, um, you know, based on those situations? Fellas, I don't know what kind of research they've done, but I, I've never, I've never, I don't, I've hunted, when you get to know individual deer like I have, you, you know what they're doing. I, I hadn't seen that. I hadn't seen a deer lay down during the primary rut and get up later and start moving. They may have lost track of him. He may have moved to another home range or something. I don't know. But I've never seen a secondary rut. I've heard it talked about all my life. I've seen after the November rut's over, then in no, December and January, of course, the dog keeps cycling if she's not bred. I've seen just a sporadic, this doe comes in here this week and, and two or three bucks will be after her because there's nothing else in. And then another week later, a, a doe fawn will come in. Them doe fawns haven't set their cycle yet and they'll they'll pop in a week here and a week there and, and then another week. I'll, I'll leave my cameras out if I'm after a big deer and I didn't get him. And if I see him on his feet again, or if I get a picture of a doe and then him coming up behind her, when I've got trail cameras out, not on mineral licks, not, not on food plots to get their picture, but when I've got them out there in the rut, I'll set them to shoot a second or two apart because I want to know if he's far in a doe if that's why he's on his feet. But if my target deer will get on his feet, if he gets on his feet again, and if he's hitting them funnels again, and if he's on a score area in daylight, I know that there's a doe fawn in the area that's starting to cycle, and I'll get in there and hunt him, sure. I'll get in there and hunt him again. One thing that I find very interesting um, is the way you talk about earlier on about sometimes you just have to be flexible in your setup. Sometimes you have to hang tree stands in the dark. Sometimes you need to check uh, trail cameras in the dark. Can you talk a little bit about why would you go in and want to hang a stand in the dark or, you know, adjust a setup in the dark or check trail cameras in the dark when most guys are like, I'm just going to check it in the, in the daylight? Fellas, I, I don't want to. I have to. I, that's like a... That guy went to the doctor and said, listen, I'm getting a little older. I need checked out of here. And he was like 95. And the doctor, well, you seem to be in perfect health. He had, a, he said, uh, what did your grandpa die from? And he said, Gramps. He said, uh, Gramps ain't dead. And he said, no. He said, no, what did your daddy die? Daddy ain't dead. He said, daddy just got married the other day. He said, got married. He said, what in the world do you want to do that for? And he said, he didn't want to. He had to. 
<laughs> it's the same thing. I don't want to get out at night and move stands and and check trail cameras, but there's no other opportunity because if it's during the rut, I'm sitting in a stand daylight the dark because nothing means as much as time spent in a tree stand. Nothing. And I'm not about to sacrifice one second. The, 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 the minute I'm not in that stand, that deer could come through. Have you ever left the stand or not hunted the stand for a day or two and then get a picture of your target buck? That, that ain't going to happen to me. I'm going to kill him when he comes through, but I'm not going to kill one buck. I'm going to kill him on purpose. That's the difference. So I don't want to get out at night and move stands and check trail cameras, but... I just don't have another opportunity to do it because during the daylight, I'm doing what it takes to kill a deer. They ain't, you get rid of all the cosmetic modifiers, they ain't, but two things required to kill a monster buck, and that is he's got to be in the woods and where you're at, and you've got to be there too. And I'm not going to give up half of that element to be doing other things besides sitting there. They ain't but so many days of good buck movement during the rut that that uh, a pressured a really material pressured buck is going to be moving during daylight and i'm not giving that i'm not giving them days up either i'm going to hunt him right and kill him on purpose or i'm not going to kill him because i ain't going to kill him haphazardly hunting him by luck that's yeah, when i get after one if he's worth my time and energy most of the time i want to kill that deer well, and that was that was another thing that Dr. Chamberlain mentioned last week, which was if there was one thing you could do to increase your chances of killing these bucks, it was just time in the stand. The number one well, thing. He, he is absolutely right. And I'll tell you, and I think studies have showed it, I honestly believe that mature bucks move more in the middle of the day than they do late and early in the day. And we're conditioned not to believe that. We hunt early in the year for does or for whatever reason, and we, we see deer movement stops about 9 or 10, when, and then it starts again in the evening. We're kind of conditioned not to believe that, but it's the truth. If I'm hunting all day long, and now don't get me wrong, if the weather gets up in the 70s or 80s, I'm not going to do it. I'm talking about with the conditions right and the time of year right. If I'm hunting all day long and at uh, uh, 10, 11, 12, 1 o'clock, I see a deer approaching my stand, I'm standing up and getting my bow because the chances are it's a buck. And the chances are pretty good, better than average, he's got some age on him. And that's just the way it is. So I'm not going to spend midday out checking trammers and moving stands because that is the most optimum time. You guys didn't know I knew a word that big, but that is the best time that you're going to kill a big deer usually is during them hours. Yeah, I've, I've experienced the same thing, and um, and that was one thing we mentioned last week also in the episode, which there was a lot of research so far, and that was the deer moved around midday, uh, and Penn State did that study. Uh, Dr. Chamberlain at LSU did that study also. And they both, you know, said the exact same thing, which was I think the Penn State study actually gave us some numbers like, what was it, like 90, 90% of the – I think 95%. Of 95% bucks. of the bucks um, moved between, what was it, uh, was it 11 and 2 or something like that, something similar to that. But it was midday movement and um, – 
and that's definitely what I've experienced. How many of your bucks have you actually killed uh, during that midday time, like between 10 and 2 or something like that? Well, quite a few, but I've killed quite a few of them, too. I, I, I've done a little looking and figuring on the times, and it's pretty well even, fellas. Early the morning, mid-morning, middle of the day, early evening or late evening, it's on the big mature bucks, it's pretty well even on the deer that I've killed. It's been pretty well an all-day thing. But I believe I've seen just as many or more, and especially here in the last few years. I believe they learn how to avoid the human predator. I know they do, and I believe they know when they can move and probably not be disturbed as much. But hey, if you miss it, that, it, it ain't like the other family groups of deer. It ain't like does and young bucks, and we get conditioned by hunting early in the year and, and just hunt, hunt and send more of those deer because there's more in the woods. We get conditioned to think they quit moving. But fellas, don't don't believe it. It's just not the case at all. Do you feel like there are certain areas that produce those deer around those times, like whether it be cover-related or close to bedding or, you know, something like that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. When those bucks get to moving and they'll move all day and they're going to they ain't gonna move all day in a circle, are they? I mean, they ain't gonna move all day in a area that's around their bed. Or if if they're gonna move all day, fellas, they're gonna cover some ground. They're gonna go through several funnels. Any mature buck during the day's travel is gonna go through several funnels. My guy told me one time. He said a uh, a deer ain't gonna a deer. The, the question you ask is makes about as much sense as the guy telling me one time that a deer ain't going to travel in a direction that he can't smell in front of him. a mature buck ain't. Well, if the wind blew from one direction for several days, which it does, he'd be in another state. And if, if a deer, if a deer is on his feet all day and you say, well, is he going to travel around a, a thicket or, or around his bedding area, then he's going to be walking a lot in a circle. No, I, I hunt. I hunt where the sign dictates. I hunt my best funnels. And just like in a heavily hunted area, I still, the deer are still the deer, and I want to hunt them where I would if there was not another hunter hunting them. That's just the way it is. Wherever they're at, I want to hunt them. If they happen to be way back in a big thicket that most hunters don't go to, then I'm going to hunt them there just like I would wherever I find them because they're going to come through there. They, they're, just, they're going to be on their feet moving. Do you pay any attention to the wind, like when you go in to hunt these areas, or do you kind of disregard that? Yeah, I do pay some attention to the wind, but I pay a lot of attention to where my wind is, where my scent is blowing. I'll have three or four funnels picked out in a my target buck's area, and I'll either make a mental or otherwise note of it, and I will know on in funnel A, I can't hunt it with a northwest wind, but... Funnel C, I can. So I will hunt my funnels according to the wind direction, and I like to hunt the funnels that the wind direction is the closest to being wrong in, but not wrong. If I can hunt a funnel, if that deer is traveling, say, north and south, coming through a funnel, if the wind is northwest and southeast, then I'd rather hunt it than if the wind was east or west. I want to hunt a funnel that gives him a little with the wind direction it gives him a little false security but it don't matter 
I'll hunt any wind but a swirling wind. If that wind's swirling and changing directions, I won't hunt it. But if it's blowing, if it's blowing solid in one direction, then I'm going to have a funnel I can hunt, and I'm going to go hunt. That's just that's just the way it is. The time in the woods means more than anything else. Bobby, one other question I've got, and this probably be one of my last questions. Uh, when it comes to stand site, stand locations. Is there anything that tells you, like, what's the perfect tree to be in? Like, it's hard to always find the perfect tree in any kind of spot because it always seems like one's a little bit too far, a little bit too close. But when it comes to the picking at stand location site, once you find find the funnels that you want to be in, whether it's in the off-season, pre-season, in-season, whenever this is happening, what's telling you is the right tree to be in, especially when it comes to entrance and exit routes, but also when the, you know, to give you the best opportunity when that deer comes through that funnel? If I can if I can go up the restriction that's blocking the deer, for instance, walk along a fence or walk up the ditch or walk around the side of a slough in the edge of the water and get in a tree without crossing the travel corridor, that's the tree I want to be in. I don't want to cross the travel corridor even even though I don't have much trouble with deer sending me, they will pick up ground scent or you might brush again on a limb or something. If I can do it that way, then that, that would be the perfect tree. And also, I consider the cover in a tree. Fellas, I talk about this in the podcast that we originally talked about here, but it's extremely disappointing to pattern a deer and hunt a deer three or four years and trying to get that, finally get a shot and him see you trying to draw your bow when when you finally do get the opportunity to shoot him and you may never get a chance, especially at that funnel. So I consider the cover on the tree. I, I, I consider a lot of things. And I'll tell you, I consider pretty strongly the distance it is from the spot I want to shoot. I want a 15 to 18 yard shot. Some people want them further back. There's just too many things that can go wrong and I want to talk about this pretty heavy in the podcast uh, that we're going to do next but there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong when shooting at a deer at a little distance especially in low light you might hit a limb or the deer's reaction to the shot or because a minute of angle if you're nervous and you're bundled up and got heavy clothes on and say you hadn't drew your bow back uh, for several hours fellas just you're not going to pinpoint a shot like you do on the practice range because of minute of angle. If let's say your aiming is just off, uh, just off three inches at ten yards because of minute of angle, at twenty yards it's off six inches, and that could put you over the deer, or that could put you under him, or that could put you in a bone that you won't kill him. I like a close shot. I like. A, I'm a pretty good archer, but I want a shot fifteen yards or so. So I take that into consideration, too. I, I usually set up closer to the deer than a lot of people do, but a lot of people miss big deer because they get nervous and they're for different reasons. Like I discussed, they're not able to pinpoint the shot like they should. I like to set up close. Fellas, going back to the tree with cover, if I will not move out of the funnel deer area to get in the perfect tree, I don't care if the tree, I've hunted in trees that weren't much bigger around than my calf. I've hunted in trees that uh, was didn't have one bit of cover. I've hunted in trees crooked as a dog's hind leg. I've hunted in all sorts of trees, and I will before I move out of my funnel deer area. I'm going to be 15 yards from the funnel deer. 
a lot of people make a mistake of, well, I know it looks like they're coming through here more, but uh, this tree back here is really, it's a lot better tree. I've had people that pick their stand location just based on a good tree they found to hunt out of. I want to get where I need to be. If, if there ain't no tree there, then, then, then it's another issue. I'll do something different. I'll block I'll block that deer moving off, and I'll put them beside a tree. I'll clear out a good a good trail on the ground, and I'll make it very appealing to them to go another ways for a little ways there to get by a tree. But there's several things in the tree that everybody naturally would pick. Like I said, good cover and uh, a tree that's close to the area, but it don't always happen like that, and I just improvise. I'll do whatever it takes to improvise. Bobby, uh, we definitely want to save that for the next episode. Like the whole, I guess you call it like the art of uh, of closing the deal, especially on a mature deer and how they're different from younger deer and just making sure that once you finally do get him in front of you, which I guess is what we covered on this one, uh, how you actually execute and make sure that you kill that thing. Uh, Jacob, do you have anything else? No, I, not at all, but uh, Bobby, just very excited about this episode. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm very excited for the next episode because it's going to go hand-in-hand with what we've discussed here. Because the thing is, once you find the deer, that's one thing. But killing him is totally different, and executing the shot is the one thing that I personally have had struggles with in, in the past. Now, Michael, I've been joking with Michael in this episode. You know, if, it, if we were filming this one, we'd see it. Uh, but Michael's had pretty good success, especially recently, killing some bucks with his bow. But I have struggled with that uh, under pressure with quality bucks, and that's going to be what we're going to be discussing in the next episode. So this conversation goes hand-in-hand hand with what we've discussed, and uh, I'm very, very excited for this uh, this second episode. But, Michael, do you have any other thoughts or questions? No. No, I think this worked out perfectly. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, like being able to find the deer is one thing. Closing the deal is another thing, and they go hand-in-hand. Hand. Yep, absolutely. Bobby, do you have any – do you have any last things you would like to discuss or, or talk about before we wrap it up? Well, in closing the deal, it, it will surprise you how many people that's hunted for a, a real mature buck all of their lives and maybe never had the opportunity or had the opportunity once and didn't get it. It surprised you how many people has hunted all their lives and if they ever did get the opportunity, they couldn't even kill it. They put a lot more time and effort into things like we've discussed and really they just bypass uh, where they need to aim on the deer's body and when they need to draw their bow and how they need to set up their stand where they can can kill the deer and how they need to set their sight pins. A lot of people, it ain't got the excitement, I've got to admit, of scouting and big buck sign and, and finding that big buck. It, it ain't got the intrigue or the excitement. I, I guess I'd have to meet, admit to that, fellas, but... Uh, we don't need to be wounding deer and we don't need to be spending two or three years hunting one and then miss them. So I think closing the deal is more important than people realize. People may think that they, a mature buck takes a lot more killing than does a young buck or a doe. It's just amazing. And we're going to talk about that. And also buck fever kicks in a lot of times when an absolute majestic giant comes through. I mean, it can make a person wilt if he does not feel confident because he has prepared in that area as well as in the area of getting one close to him. So it is going to be an important subject. It may not get the intrigue as a lot of subjects, but uh, hey, fellas, uh, uh, a person that wants to spend some some time and effort in a subject that they they see is that important, they'd pull up a little corn. 
it, it's 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 just a really important thing to to put some time and effort and preparation, mental and physical, into being able to make that shot when it gets in front of. You. So I think it's going to be important to talk about. Now, like I said, it may be a little boring, and some people don't have no trouble with that issue. But I want to be able to tell people exactly where the, the best spot is to aim the arrow and how to set the bow up where it's going to hit and and when maybe to draw their bow and, and certain aspects of finishing it off because, like I said, a lot of people have hunted for years and they think they can do it because they've maybe had some luck killing does. These guys that's had some luck killing does, young bucks, if they think back, they may have missed or wounded a third of them and then they just think somehow automatically if they put in the time and effort and get that big buck in front of them they deserve it and they're going to kill it but that ain't necessarily the case them big deer take a lot more killing and they'll they've got a they've got a power over a hunter that can i mean they can scare you to death you sitting up 20 feet in a tree and, don't, and they don't even know you're there they can they can have an effect on you so we need to talk about that i think i don't i don't think any other I don't know. I don't really listen to podcasts. Can't even stand to listen to my own. But I don't think probably anybody's covered that in depth like we need to cover it. Absolutely. Well, if you're listening right now, everybody, again, hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast to listen to this next episode coming out with Bobby in the future. Uh, and again, if you've enjoyed this episode, you know, share it with a buddy. We really would appreciate that. And Bobby, let me ask you this. If we have any listeners that want to reach out to you and maybe ask you specific questions, if you're willing to take questions, how can people find you um, or, you know, be able to reach out to you if they have any specific questions uh, over some of the topics we've covered so far? Well, I, I get that quite a bit, and I try to answer them all. I, fellas, I don't. I'm a working man. I got to get in the number, uh, get in the morning, get in the side of the mountain, cut the timber. I, uh, I don't have a lot of time, but I do occasionally. You get a phone call or a text. I'd rather I'd rather have that than a. I hadn't been on my email in a couple of weeks. I just don't have time to sit here and go through all of it. So I'm not trying to shun anybody. I usually. It may take me two weeks or it may take me a month, but I usually find deer hunting questions and I usually try to find some time, maybe a rainy day or something, but I will answer them. But really it's more convenient to me with a phone up in my ear, maybe doing something else, commuting to work or something. So if you, if you Google my name there and, and get on my website, uh, all my contact information is on there. Perfect, Bobby. Well, thank you again for coming on this week's episode. We're excited for the next episode, and uh, best of luck to you. Well, I'm not going to say best of luck to you because you don't live by luck. You, 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 again, I think <laughs> I think the name of this episode, by the way, I, you know, I don't know if this is what we're going to roll with it, but Bobby, you know, one thing you said as a quote, and I'm going to say it again at the end of this podcast, is killing a big buck on purpose and not killing it by luck is the way that you live. You're trying to kill that buck by, on purpose. And uh, I think that's a, a big takeaway on this episode uh, for everybody. So this next episode, we'll kind of hit into a little bit more details on some other topics. But, Bobby, thank you again for coming on this week's episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. You're very welcome. I appreciate the opportunity to share what I've learned in the Deer Woods. If, if, if I don't share it all the time and effort and energy I put forth, if it only benefits me, then it's pretty hollow. You know, if I, it, it, it ain't worth actually the the effort and time I've put into it if it only benefits me. So I really appreciate a floor mat in which I can uh, share what I know. 
Thank you, fellas. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman. And thank you to Blackberry Smoke for the music for the podcast. Also, to follow along with us, make sure you check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Until next time, y'all stay Southern. This podcast has been presented by Hunting Exchange. Look, last summer, y'all heard us talk a bunch about the Mobile Hunters Expo. It was an incredible event. A bunch of you guys came out to meet us. We got to talk to, I don't even know how many listeners. If you heard all that last year and you were like, dang, that sounded cool. I should have went to that. Here's your chance. You need to make it to this one. It's June 28th through June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. All right. Giving you a heads up here. So go ahead and mark it on your calendar. June 28th through June 30th, Dalton, Georgia is going to be the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. We're going to be there. A bunch of our past podcast guests are going to be there. There's going to be seminars. All of the mobile hunting companies are going to be there for you to try out gear before you buy it. It's like the one event of the year where all of the the like the mobile hunter ecosystem just kind of congregates in one place. And Chris and Josh and the guys have done an absolutely phenomenal job putting this thing together over the last couple years. And it keeps getting better every year. So like I said, make sure you come see us. We're going to have a gigantic stack of free stickers to give away to every listener that stops by the booth. And we're going to have merch there to purchase. We're going to be recording podcasts, shooting videos, all kinds of stuff. So like I said, don't miss it. You can head on over to the mobilehuntersexpo.com to look at show schedules and dates and go ahead and grab your tickets. So y'all go check it out at the mobilehuntersexpo.com.